Hi, this is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. My guest today is Judith Warner, New York Times bestselling author of We've Got Issues, Children and Parents in the Age of Medication. Welcome to Family Confidential, Judith. Thanks for having me here. Well, I am really glad that you are with us today. I know you're really busy, but I think that the topic today about medication and kids with quote-unquote issues is one that speaks to the heart of so many parents and teachers who are my main listeners. So let's get right to it. Um, you mentioned in your preface that your original book idea was to be talking about what you call the culture of diagnosis. And I'm going to read from that untitled book proposal idea. Um, it says the central argument was going to be that children were, by and large, being overdiagnosed and overmedicated, and that doctors and parents and teachers and schools who colluded in labeling kids and treating them with psychotropic medication were taking the easy way out, seeking quick fix solutions, and turning a collective blind eye to the pathological aspects of our culture. That isn't the book you wrote, and I'd like to find out what happened from that initial idea to your first draft. Well, basically, at a certain point, I started trying to report it. You know, that was a book that was very easy to sell because the ideas that were central to it are basically what everybody thinks. I mean, almost everyone believes, you know, when I say everyone, just sort of people out there believe generally that right now kids are being grossly over-medicated, they're being, you know, basically stuffed full of meds to up their performance, that kids are being over-diagnosed with all kinds of so-called disorders, flavor of the month, faddish disorders that nobody had a generation ago, and that, you know, parents are doing this because they want to up their kids' performance. Teachers are going along with it because it's a form of classroom management for them. And doctors are going along with it because I guess if your tool is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. This is certainly the starting point that I came out of, um, being a parent of young children, hearing of kids in my community who were getting diagnosed with issues I mean, I had never heard of, starting forms of therapy that I'd never heard of that sounded weird to me. I mean, who had heard of OT? I certainly hadn't. And we're taking medication and, you know, the idea, I remember seeing a girl, let's say, on my block, a perfectly quote-unquote normal girl who was taking medication for ADHD. My gut reaction was, you know, what, what is that? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So that's where I started, and as I say, it was very easy to, to sell that book. The problem was, when I started to really report it, that the reporting couldn't back up these basic ideas that sprang from these kind of, you know, casual observations or even that backed up the materials that I had already put together based on extensive reading in the media. I mean, you know, the story of over-medicated kids is one that journalists have been covering and reporting for at least 15 years, and so you really have no shortage. It was everywhere, so it was very easy to compile statistics, to um, have experts who are quoted talking about overdiagnosis and overmedication. So I was very confident moving forward. And then, you know, there started to be some some facts that got in the way. Um, you probably know that journalistic expression, don't let the facts get in the way. 
One of them was going to a group of parents, a parents group that had been convened in one of the suburbs nearby to talk about kids' issues. It was called um, Should I Worry? You know, and I went expecting to hear parents worrying about their kids getting B's instead of A's. This is a very competitive community and talking about how to kind of up their kids' performance. And that wasn't what I heard at all. I heard about parents who were talking about having to call 911 if a child came after them with a knife. Mm. And how you got any kind of decent basic services that were really tailored for your child um, and not a form of warehousing, basically, if you were in the public school system. Can I ask who was putting on this seminar? Should I worry? It was a, a group of parents. I don't remember if they really had a formal name. It was some parents who were in the public school system who themselves had children with mental health issues who had formed this sort of support and informational group for other parents, the sort of chief purpose of which was to help them navigate the public school system so that they could get their kids the services that they needed. Got it. So you went because there was an open invitation and you were, this, as far as you were concerned, maybe part of your um, research. Right, exactly. But when I went and when I heard what these parents were talking about and just the, you know, horribly painful circumstances they were in and the just overwhelming nature of the children's problems, I was devastated on the one hand. But on the other hand, afterwards, I went home and I wrote across the notebook where I'd taken notes, this is not what I'm writing about. Mm. Because I was just so dead set in this position that I was writing about made-up flavor-of-the-month diagnoses, which clearly these kids didn't have. And so, you know, that started a period then of about a year and a half of trying to figure out what I was writing about. And it became more and more difficult to know because as I started contacting experts, including many of the experts who I'd seen quoted in the media, they weren't backing up this gross over-diagnosis, gross over-medication storyline. What I was hearing most often from experts was that the really big issue in children's mental health was that so many kids were not being diagnosed, that so many kids were walking around with untreated difficulties, and how much better we really needed to do in identifying kids and getting them good treatment. And when I say good treatment, I don't mean just handing them medication. I mean good comprehensive treatment. Effective treatment that was going to help Effective them. Effective treatment, exactly. Effective treatment and also treatment that viewed them as human beings in their entirety. I'm going to ask a question that may seem naive because I'm not in the newspaper or media business, but this splashing of headlines and the sensationalization of the concept that we were, in fact, over-medicating our kids and that there was a flavor of the week diagnosis, where was that coming from if, in fact, the experts that you were talking to were not backing that up? I think that journalism tends most of the time to sort of traffic in received ideas. Mm. And I think that most people in our country contemplating a new landscape where kids are being diagnosed with things that we didn't hear about a generation ago, ADHD, Asperger's, even depression, you know, kids weren't even believed to be susceptible to depression until well into the 1970s. You know, you didn't hear about these things in the past, and so they didn't seem to exist. They did exist, but we didn't have the eyes to see it. So there was a feeling that, there is a feeling that something new and strange is happening. The use of medications for kids, this is new too, and it's very alien to us. I think that generally, 
we are suspicious of medication, particularly psychotropic medication for anybody. But when it comes to kids, it's a shock. It goes against everything that we believe about what childhood is, what childhood should be, how children should be understood and treated, this sort of mechanistic, biologistic model, let's say, you know, that looks at them in terms of brain chemistry. That's that's new and suspect and just, I think, difficult for people to swallow. So I think that, you know, you had this general feeling that then was backed up by statistics. If you see statistics saying that the number of kids being diagnosed with mental health disorders has tripled since the early 1990s, you think, whoa, something weird is going on. Our mm-hmm. kids are being pathologized. Mm-hmm. The truth is so much more complicated and more nuanced and takes a lot more explaining than something that can be done in a headline or in a 600-word story. Gotcha. And I'm thinking parents who are suffering with this day-to-day and dealing with the reality of raising a child who has issues and, say, has not been diagnosed, is not being effectively treated, and, for example, they go into into the public and their child's behavior manifests itself in front of everyone there the parent has to deal with not only the reality of how can I help my child, my child is suffering, but they're being demonized by every parent within earshot. That's right. And hearing a lot of insensitive and unthinking comments. I have a, a book here that I received a while ago that's gotten some attention, um, Shut Up About Your Perfect Kid. And there are anecdotes in there um, of, for example, things that are overheard or things that are said to you. If I had a weekend with your bipolar kid, I'd get him into shape. You know, things like that. You know, this idea that there is very strongly still the belief that when children have problems, it's the parents' fault. It's because of parenting. You know, this is an idea that was just a stalwart of American psychiatry, psychology for decades and decades. And I mean, if you go back further, you know, and if you go back sort of pre-psychiatry, just look at um, the sort of religious view of child rearing, let's say, in previous centuries, it's another version of the same thing, Mm -hmm. often enough. But psychiatrists, psychologists have moved away from that framework. Parents are not blamed for everything anymore. You know, it's believed that parents can help or hurt what's already going on with the child, but that most of what happens with kids stems at least in part from brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. So there is this very much changed perspective within medicine or within psychology. But the perspective really has not changed out in the public. And it certainly isn't helpful to families dealing with this, to the kids themselves, to the parents, to the teachers. It's it's so counterproductive to the benefit of the child who we say is our prime focus. It's really interesting. So a year and a half into your research, you're coming up now with something very different. And your book proposal, your idea is taking shape in a whole different direction. Well, at first, it was just falling apart. Every time I... (laughs) That's a different direction. (laughs) That's right. I mean, it was coming together in the direction of crumbling. I kept trying to redefine it so that it would stand. You were invested in the initial idea. Of course I was. You know, bipolar disorder and ADHD were flavor of the month diagnoses, but schizophrenia was not. Well, I mean, you know, and then I would think, okay, what exactly in my literature background qualifies me to make these medical judgments? Mm. So that would be problematic. And basically there was a turning point. There was a moment 
where I had kind of a scales falling from my eyes experience. And that was, I was sitting in our local coffee house and I was reading a book called uh, David Healy's History of Psychopharmacology, Story of Psychopharmacology. And I got to the chapter on the anti-psychiatry movement of the 1960s. And I found there, in all of these 1960s thinkers, notably Foucault, let's say, who I had read in the 80s as a literature student when I was reading a lot of literary theory, and when we were doing a lot of talking about things like the discourse of power, the various discourses of power, of which psychiatry was a prime one, I found word for word on the page all of my basic assumptions Hmm. about psychiatry and about the pathologization of children and adults and everything else, and about how society creates mental illness. And when I saw this, because I, you know, my belief about myself was that I had matured and grown away from all of the very ideological theory that I had taken in so avidly in the 1980s that I had decided to be a journalist as opposed to a PhD candidate at a certain point because I wanted to sort of be in the real world with real people rather than merely dealing in abstractions. And I realized that my whole take on this subject was based on these abstractions that were undigested, had not matured in all of these years Mm -hmm. since college, had not necessarily been tempered by greater amounts of knowledge or greater engagement with reality. And when I saw this, I mean, literally, when I saw my ideas on the page, word for word, but those sentences were from 1968, I thought, I don't know anything. Mm. And I have to start entirely over from scratch. That must have been a very humbling and yet in some way liberating experience, because you said every time you tried to build up your concept, it was crumbling beneath you, and that had to be frustrating. And so here, in a way, you're saying, oh, okay, I don't have to pretend to know something here. I truly don't know the reality. You're absolutely right, that it was both humbling and liberating, because then there was a roadmap. Okay, I have to learn this subject now. I have to learn everything I can about these disorders. I have to talk to the experts, not to sort of glean little bits of opinion, but to hear the the real content, what they know, what they do, where the science is tending now, and also where the science has been, how this has evolved over time. Also, what I really started spending a lot of time doing was talking to parents and hearing their stories. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting in hearing their stories was that I would say all of them had kind of been on the same journey that I had been on, had followed the same trajectory. You know, they hadn't come to the point of having their children diagnosed with mental health issues and in some cases using medication with any kind of eagerness, you know, wanting to have their kids diagnosed, wanting to find something wrong with them so they could get extra time on the SAT or something like that. And, you know, a lot of people believe that. You know, they, they too had come to it with a lot of suspicion often feeling like teachers and doctors wanted to put kids in boxes and normalize them and, you know, their kids were free spirits and and believing that, believing that until things just got to be so tough for their kids that they had to actually start seeing specialists and sort of enter into that whole system, which was very painful for them. I'm sure. Well, I think you, you just hit on something that jumped out at me when you talked about opinion versus actual fact and that this opinion in especially today's media realm where 
the blogosphere and and the 24-hour news cycle is is essentially regurgitating opinion day after day. We think we're in the know, and the truth is that we're just echoing opinions that have been taken and spit out from other people, and the facts are totally missing in action. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And unfortunately, a lot of journalism is regurgitation. I was very struck by your interviews and your, well, let's just say the descriptions of life in the trenches with some of these parents. I was too. I mean, the, the interviews were, were exhausting to do. I mean, I would do, I realized after a while I couldn't do more than one a day and that I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be good for anything after doing one of these interviews mm-hmm. because it was, they're, you know, emotionally wrenching. Again, each time you would hear a journey, you would hear a story that began, let's say, when a child was maybe a baby, and if not a baby, very young. And there would be an arc to the story of something was wrong, but we didn't know what. We tried to get help, but a lot of the time, the help wasn't very good. Or it involved going to a lot of different people. And here in the Washington area, um, a lot of the people I spoke to were local, though not all. There are a lot of big experts, and a lot of the big experts are very arrogant. So there were a lot of appointments with big-name people who didn't actually pay any attention to you, let's say. Hmm. And then searching and searching for the right person who took the time to really listen, who really thought hard about the particular child, who came up with some kind of truly individualized vision and then plan for how to make things better. And there was such a contrast between what the people were able to do who had a lot of money mm-hmm. and what even, never never mind even talking about the options for poor people, but what middle class people were able to do. Right. And the different levels, you know, we, we know this throughout our society, of course, you know, how stratified it is, you know, the different opportunities that there are for children based on their socioeconomic background. But in this area too, the glaring differences between the kind of help that rich kids can get and what everybody else can get are just heartbreaking. So if a parent listening to this today is at the beginning of this journey, has just gotten a diagnosis, or has that gut feeling there's something wrong, I've, I've been in denial long enough I see my child is suffering. I'm getting all all the cues. I need to start this journey. What advice would you give them? I think that if you have an excellent pediatrician, a pediatrician who listens, who takes the time to listen, who gets to know your family, who you have a real rapport with, and who has really good contacts for referrals, that a pediatrician is a very good place to start because they tend to have at least some knowledge of these things some ability to spot red flags, but most importantly, the ability to send you on to good specialists. And it's it's hard to find specialists, period. It's even harder to find really good specialists. So I think that's a good place to start. You want to get to a specialist. You want to get a full evaluation, a full psychoeducational evaluation. And they're very expensive. School systems will do them for you But it's hard to get them done by a school system because the rules are different everywhere. But generally, your child has to be seriously underperforming academically to make that possible. And a lot of the time, 
kids, even kids with dyslexia, kids with ADHD, they may not be underperforming enough to make it so that the school system will agree to do it and pay for it. The problem also very often with evaluations that are done through the public school system is that they're not very good quality. You know, you're not paying for it. The system is doing it on the cheap often. Right. Depending on how good your school system is and how much money they have, if you can manage to scrape together the two or $3,000 to get the evaluation, it's worth it because it's really critically important to get the best possible start in this process by really understanding what's going on with your child. And this is an evaluation that goes on over a couple of days, you know, for, let's say, two or three hours a day. Um, and that looks at emotional and cognitive differences to try to get a full picture of what's going on with the child. And also brings in, you know, parent testimonials, teacher testimonials. I think that's, I really think that's an essential place to start. And of course, I'm, I'm sorry, I should just say with the pediatrician, ruling out that there isn't anything physically wrong with the child, that a child doesn't have a vision problem or a hearing problem, let's say. Right. And I would say, look at the vision problem with a pediatrician, not with an optometrist. And at what age can a child really be evaluated with any hope of getting an accurate evaluation? Is, is a three-year-old, for example, a candidate for this kind of evaluation? You know, I'm not an educational psychologist or a you know, neuropsychologist myself. So I can just say from what I have heard and understood... I think there are kinds of evaluations that can be done, but they, people tend to wait until later because there are so many maturity issues with very young children. You know, they mature at different rates, so you can't judge certain things too young because they're just not in place for different kids yet. Um, I think generally a lot of, of issues don't even show up until, say, third or fourth grade. So I think that you know, very often parents of very young children are advised to wait and see, and I think that's that's probably good advice, and yet I think it's a good thing to be talking to a pediatrician all along. And certainly if you're talking about autistic spectrum disorders, it's very important to be on top of that very early because the, the earlier the interventions can be done, the greater the chance there is for a positive outcome. And with some children, you know, who are at the very mild end of the spectrum, when they get very intensive early intervention, they can actually be brought to a point where they're not identifiably on the spectrum anymore. So I'm trying to listen to what you just said through a parent's anxious ears and saying, well, on the one hand, I heard her say we should wait. And on the other hand, I just heard her say, um, the sooner the better. And it's confusing. <laughs> I think it depends. I think that it depends on what we're talking about. I think generally with sort of academic issues, you kind of have to wait until the point where children can be expected to be at a certain level. I mean, if you have a five-year-old who's not reading, I think it would be, again, I'm a journalist, I'm not an expert, but from everything I know, it seems that it might be foolish to rush to conclusions because let's say you have a five-year-old who isn't reading because the expectations have been so sped up. At that point, we may just be talking about unrealistic expectations so children read a little later. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you have a child doesn't seem to be developing normally in terms of communication, let's say, and connection, it would be very foolish to wait because we know that symptoms of autism tend to show up, I think, at around 18 months or certainly can be discerned starting at around that point. 
And the longer you wait, the more problematic it is. Which is exactly why you want to talk to a pediatrician as your first stop, because they've got the broad range of what is quote unquote normal versus talking to your neighbor or comparing with your (laughs) sister-in-law. Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes really good sense. Um, I know that parents are naturally fearful of the idea of medicating their kids because of, again, back to the opinion out there in the uh, mainstream media about turning your kid into a quote-unquote zombie or in some way um, just making them so unlike the child that you know and love. And what did your research say about that in terms of talking to parents who took that step? What people say is that when medication works, and it doesn't always work, but when it works, instead of producing a child who is like a zombie, I mean, if you have that kind of reaction, then there's something wrong with the medication. It's not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. The child is restored to his or herself. Mm -hmm. It actually brings the child back to who they are rather than making them into someone else. It permits them to be who they really are. And that's the kind of thing that children themselves say. I mean, usually it's older children or teenagers who are able to articulate it, let's say. But they are able to be themselves, feel themselves, do what they know they can do, let's say, in the case of, let's say, ADHD medication, where very often you'll have a child who has all kinds of capabilities but can't access them because of attentional problems or, you know, impulsivity problems or working memory problems or whatever else. With antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicine, very often you can hear parents describe about how it brought the children back to themselves again after a period in which they seemed to be lost. How wonderful. Wow. And these meds, and I know there's a whole range of them, and it's, it's often a situation where through trial and error, you find what works, your physician finds what works with your child and the dosage and all of that. And I'm also wondering if, where is the place of talk therapy in this? There are studies that have shown the very great effectiveness, for example, of cognitive behavioral therapy Mm -hmm. in treating anxiety disorders and treating depression. There are studies that have shown the effectiveness of interpersonal therapy Mm -hmm. for childhood depression and for the kids who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I'm saying the kids who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder because there is so much debate right now about whether all those kids really are bipolar or not. There is not a debate within the medical community about whether those kids have serious problems or not. The question is just whether they're actually bipolar or not. And so there are forms of therapy that have been proven to be truly very successful for kids. There are even studies that have shown ways that cognitive behavioral therapy can physically show brain changes in people with OCD, for example. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that a lot of the therapy that's done in our country for adults or for children isn't proven, isn't very good, is done by people of wildly varying levels of qualification. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, it's so important to get referrals to people who, who are good, who are really good quality, because therapy is very expensive, it's very time-consuming, and to go down a path with a form of therapy that doesn't work can be just a, a heartbreaking experience and can also kind of sour families on the whole attempt to get help, and that really can be very problematic for children. Um, this also sounds like 
it can be a very lonely and exhausting kind of journey for parents as they're seeking with the loving hearts and desperately wanting to help their kids, seeking that help. I'm wondering if you came across any really good parental support organizations that are either on a regional, local, or national level? I know that there are all kinds of different parent support groups. The biggest organization that provides information and support is NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And they have a national group and there are regional groups. CHAD um, is a group that provides a lot of support for adults and children with attention deficit disorder. I'm not getting what you're saying. NAMI, how do you spell that? When does it stand for? N-A-M-I, National Alliance on Mental Illness, CHAD, C-H-A-D-D. And these organizations have, obviously have websites and and probably have toll-free numbers. They have websites, they provide information, um, and there are also ways to connect with people in your area. Sometimes through schools, you can find support groups, although what I find, and I think this is really a pity, but just the truth of the way we live, is that within school communities, people really want to save face. You know, it's very competitive. And for the most part, parents don't trust other parents enough to really tell them what's going on with their kids. Mm. And it's such a pity because parents could help each other enormously with emotional support, but also with resources and referrals. And I think it really takes a lot to get to the point in a parent community where people will truly admit to one another when something is going wrong. Yeah, I understand that competition is is fierce in many communities, and it it does make it hard to make yourself vulnerable in that way. Absolutely. Well, um, we're going to wrap up now, and I want to thank you so much. This book is really important, and I'm sure it's, it's very comforting and informative to people who are at at any point in this journey, unless they're one of those very fortunate families who have hooked up with good caregivers and and healthcare providers so that their kids are getting help. But there seems to be, I wish it weren't true, but there is obviously a great need for a book like this because many, many more parents are groping in the dark and and feeling very lost. So I want to thank you, Judith, so much for writing this book and for um, being the crusader for truth as you are. Thank you so much, Annie, for having me on and also for saying what you've said. That means a great deal to me. My guest today has been Judith Warner. She's the author of We've Got Issues, Children and Parents in the Age of Medication. Judith, before I let you go, is there a website where people can find out more about your work? Yes, thank you. It's um, www.judithwarneronline.com. Thanks a lot, Judith. And Keep up the good work. Thank you. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. To learn more about my work with teens and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next week for a new podcast when my guest will be Keith Safran, the creator of The Great Dads Project. Until then, happy parenting.